Okay, um, Rabbi Shachter and I have an agreement that whenever we speak at each other's shuls, we don't introduce each other. It's like this mutually assured destruction kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, agreement. But I'm not sure if it applies to camp because I'm not speaking in camp Simcha. He's only speaking here, so maybe uh, maybe I get a little bit of a little bit of leeway. Um, but I'll, I'll try to honor his uh, his request and his desire not to have an elaborate introduction, but just to say that we are extremely grateful. Um, to Rabbi Shechter, it's not a coincidence. He's here on Gedolim Day, um, and, uh, so, and, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a tribute to our friendship. Uh, Rabbi Shechter is one of my closest friends. Probably not a day or two goes by where we're not in communication with each other, or spending meaningful time, and I gain tremendously from his uh, from his insight and uh, from his Torah. And I was very, very appreciative that he drove in the rain to be able to come here to Camp Kaley during a very busy time in Camp Simcha, where he's dealing with a lot, and uh, took time to be able to share Torah with us today. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Leibowitz. Good afternoon, everyone. It's really a great pleasure to be here. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you're on camp time, so it's good morning for all of you. Um, really, I'm, I'm honored to be here. As I told Rabbi Leibowitz, Camp Simcha is a very, very intense place. We have uh, very serious shilas that come up every single day and that we have to deal with all the time. And to come here to Camp Cayley and be able to relax a little bit and take a little break from that is something that I appreciate very much. And uh, of course, our friendship is something that I value and I'm so happy to be here, um, especially now that I know that it's Gedolim Day. It's a very special day here on the campus. And just a word about Gedolim. It really fits into everything that I was gonna talk about. You know, I was just discussing with Rabbi Leibowitz that there are very serious shilas that come up throughout our lives. And if anybody here is planning at some point to be a Marbitz Torah, to be a Rav, to be a Machanech, where you're going to be in a position where people are going to turn to you and perhaps present questions, you're always going to need to have a Gadol in your life who you can turn to who can really answer those questions. I was just talking to Rabbi Leibowitz that yesterday, uh, aside from everything going on in Camp Simcha, which, as I said, sometimes is um, very, very intense, the shilas that come up. But aside from that, um, just yesterday I was called by a, a member of our community about a very serious shaila about hapalas uber, about an abortion. And they have a very difficult condition that's going on with a yet-to-be-born child, and the question is what to do. These are shilas that are obviously not made to be answered by people like us. These are questions that we all need to have someone in our lives that we can turn to, who knows how to take responsibility, and who knows how to give an answer that is really correct al-pi halacha and is able to give guidance and clarity to the person who's calling for that question and with that issue. Aside from that, I, I guess I'm sure Rabbi Leibowitz shares the same um, experience. I I probably am on the phone with abortion shadows twice a week, um, not from my own community, but because there are a very limited number of postgame in America who actually deal with these questions. And everybody knows that my father is one of them. Not everybody knows how to get in touch with him, myself included. So um, I get these questions very, very often. Rabbi Leibowitz, I'm sure, gets them as well uh, to pass on to others. And one thing that I always find very meaningful is that at the end of these conversations, of course, if you know my father, he always cries and he's very emotional, even when it's something that's uh, not related to him at all, but just a person who's asking a question that really has no relationship with him. But at the end, he always offers them a bracha that they should have healthy children in the future and they should be able to be have to have uh, healthy pregnancies. And, and that, to people, is also very, very meaningful. To get a bracha from a Talmud Chacham, from a Tzaddik, is something that is an important thing. So having gedolim in our lives is something that obviously this camp feels is an important value for all of the campers and all of you that must meet them to take advantage of. And uh, I would encourage you, you're going to have a session today with Reb David Kohn. You're going to have the opportunity to meet Rebuven Feinstein. Realize that you're talking to icons of the Jewish people. Realize that you're having the opportunity to interact with those who are really um, dedicating their entire lives to Talmud Torah and to Harbatzah's Torah. It's not something you're going to see every day. It's not an interaction that you're going to have the opportunity to be exposed to all the time. But it's something that you should really take full advantage of. And when David Cohn is here, you should ask him, Good questions. Ask him hard questions. He gets hard questions all the time. He won't be afraid of your questions. And um, just make sure not to ask silly questions. I think um, sometimes people get so uncomfortable, they don't really know what to say. They don't even know what to ask. But try to think. In the next, uh, while I'm giving shear, 
if you're spacing out. Think about uh, very good questions that you can present and good issues that you can bring up. Um, what I was going to talk about today was a very unfortunate situation that I had just a couple of weeks ago that I'm sure you've heard about similar kinds of scenarios, but maybe you've never actually delved into how the halacha deals with them. And that is, it was right before a young man got married, less than one week, I think, before, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was less than one week before his wedding, and there was a shayla of Mamzerus that arose about him. And he had no idea prior that there was any question, that there was any issue on his yichus. Why would any of us think that there's a problem with any of our yichus? And here he is right on the cusp of getting married, and he realizes that he has a very serious shayla on his hands. He doesn't know if he's allowed to get married. As we know, the Torah says, Lo yavu mamzer And this is one of those areas, again, there are some areas of halacha. You have a shayla in hilchus avelus, you go to Yerav. You have a shayla in hilchus taras ha-meshpacha, a shayla in hilchus nesias kapayim, what you're learning now. Many rabbanim can answer. When you have a shayla in hilchus mamzerus, this is not something that your rav should be answering. And if your rav does answer it, you may want to you know, think about whether your rav is actually being honest with you and whether he really should be the right person answering such a question. These are very, very weighty issues. Just to give you a little bit of a perspective, when this issue came up, and obviously it was a very intense situation because it was a week before the wedding, nobody knew about it except for the chassan and his family, and we were trying to figure out how to help him and what exactly should be done. Um, so I had spoken to my father about it. I spoke to Rav Asher Weiss. I called her Shlomo Amar in Yerushalayim. I was on the phone with a Ad Bezdin in Tel Aviv as well. There was a, a lot of different personalities who were getting involved to try to help this boy if it was possible to do so. And at the time, Rav Asher Weiss, first when I spoke to him, said he doesn't think that there's much room to be mekel. He thinks that this is a very serious issue. Uh, later on, he called me the next day and he said, I thought about it some more and I do think that there is a possibility to come up with a head through here. However, he said, if I'm going to go to Gehenna for the psak that I'm about to give to be Matar Mamzer, he was actually not laughing. He was completely serious. If I'm going to go to Gehenna for an Onesh, for being Matar Mamzer that maybe should not have been allowed, I need to make sure that I have a Chavrusa to learn with. I need to make sure I have someone I can talk and learning with. So if Rav Schechter is willing to sign along with me, then I'm willing to do this. But if not, I don't think I'm prepared to do this myself. Now, it sounds funny, and it sounds cute, but he was very serious. The problem was, I had already discussed it with my father, and he didn't agree. So, I asked Rav Asher Weiss, who would you like as a substitute chavrusa? How many people would, would you be okay with? Anyway, Baruch Hashem, he was okay with the Dain in Tel Aviv. He said he's a phenomenal Talmud Chacham, a very great Tzaddik, a great Yid, who deals with these shadows all the time. The reason why I bring that in is because you begin to understand the weight that a real posig holds when they're dealing with very serious questions in Halakha. They don't take it lightly. It's not a joke. It's something that they take very, very seriously. And, you know, even though we were under pressure to try to figure out what to do before the wedding, the response that I kept getting was, stop pressuring me. Don't pressure me. We need to really sit on it. We need to sleep on it. We need to really think about it. We need to make sure that other Rabbanim are comfortable with it. And if it means we have to push off the wedding and give some kind of reason why the wedding was pushed off, then that's what we need to do. But you cannot just expect that the answer is going to be like a slot machine. You know, you put money in and you get something out. It's not the way it works. Sometimes it takes time to really come up with a formulated answer that is going to be responsible based on the Klalim and Halacha. And that's really what I just wanted to touch upon today. We've all heard about Mamzerus issues. Um, recently, I spoke about this in my shul. I just thought people would find it very fascinating to hear about some of the background. I really didn't give the details of this case because I don't want to expose anybody, but I did speak about it in the shul, and a woman called me up afterward and said, you know, I was listening to your shir, and I mentioned it to a Talmud Chacham, who I know, and he, he said, like, I must have been hearing things. How could it be You were, you know, that, that you were involved in being mater and mamzer, we don't do such things. And I said, I'm not sure what exactly his question is, but I question the level of Talmud Chacham that he is. Because in any tshuva sefer that you will read from any famous Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Vad Yosef, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Urbach, and every other great gadol of our generation and prior, really, this goes back hundreds of years, every single tshuva sefer has tshuvas on mamzerus. This is not, this is not something new. Now, of course, the reason why they're in those svarim is because you need to be of that caliber of Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Avad Yosef and all of those great gedolim to be able to even be in the ring, to be able to even get involved in such a discussion. 
But this is not something new. This is something we've been discussing for many, many years. And this is something that the great Gidolim of every generation have taken upon their shoulders to really think about very seriously. So we begin with the Gemara in Mesechah's Kiddushan, where the Gemara tells us, Asari yuchsin alu im Yisrael The Gemara tells us, it's like almost a funny way to say it, there are ten people who have great yichus who came to Eretz Yisrael after the Jewish people came out of Galus Babel. Now, the truth is, when you look through that list, the beginning of the list is, yes, Kohanim Levim Yisraelim, but then it goes down in grade levels from there. And the beginning of the list is all the people that you're allowed to marry. The end of the list is all those people that you're not allowed to marry. So Amamzer is one of those people in that list. And we learn it from the Pasuk in Chumash, Lo Yavu Mamzer V'Kahal Hashem. Rashi says, means simply, Lo Yisa Yisraelis. He's not allowed to marry a Jewish woman. And not only that, we assume, based on the Mishnah Masechus Yilamas, we assume this is not just a one-time problem. This is a problem that is going to continue to perpetually be an issue as the Mamzer moves forward. And as he has his own children, if he figures out how to marry somebody else and he's going to bring children into the world, that problem will continue to perpetuate itself over and over and over again ad olam. That is what the, uh, that is what the Gemara says. The Mishnah says in Masechus Kiddushin that Havlad Holech Achar HaPogum. So let's say the Mamzer does something wrong and he goes and he marries a regular Jewish woman from a regular Jewish family, which he's not allowed to do. But let's say he chooses to do that. Says the Gemara, what will that child be? So the Gemara says in Kiddushin, I think it's a Mishnah actually, Havlad Holech Achar We assume whichever one is the worst of the two parties involved in this marriage, that is what's going to determine the status of this child. So if the husband is a Mamzer or the wife is a Mamzeris, either way, we assume the child is going to take the worst of the two parents and the child will then be a Mamzer continuing on this problem. What's extremely tragic about the story of Mamzerus is that sometimes Mamzerus could be a consequence that is not even for doing something wrong. Somebody was not intentional in doing wrong. Somebody was Ba'ones. For example, we know that Shulchan Aruch says if you have a woman who is married and she has, she's Nensa, she's forced to have a relationship with someone which she would never want to have a relationship with another person, but a gun was held to her head or whatever it is, she was raped, and now she becomes pregnant, and now she has a child, the halacha would be that child would be a mamzer, even though, of course, she doesn't want to have any part of this. She did not want to be involved. So much so, the Gemara says in Maseches Yivamas as well, the Mishnah tells us, A woman whose husband goes on a business venture, and then they come back and they tell her, and she doesn't know anything about it. Why should she know any differently? There was no communication. There was no way to find out. So she believes them. And then she goes ahead and gets remarried on the assumption that whatever the people told her was actually true. Now she gets remarried, and it turns out, after a couple of months being married, her husband shows up. A tragic situation, which obviously is not her fault. The basin in the town told her, you can rely on these Aiden. They're telling you the truth. You can go ahead and get remarried. And after she gets remarried, it turns out that her husband shows up, says the Gemara in such a case, that child that is born from that marriage is now going to be a mamzit. Why? But I didn't do anything wrong. The Beisden told me to do it. Now, the Beisden also didn't do anything wrong because the Beisden was relying on the Aden. Turns out the Aden were lying. The Aden were assuming. They assumed that this person died, right? We're all following what happened last week in the news? A little bit, maybe? Did we follow the news here? Right? With this Titanic mission, the submarine went under water. So that's a major sugi in the Gemara about Mayim She'en Lam So That's exactly what it talks about. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that whoever was on that submarine is dead. There's no way they came out and went somewhere else and are now living another life on an island somewhere. But the Gemara does discuss what are the parameters? When are we allowed to make assumptions? Even though all of us would naturally assume that even if the bodies are not found, we probably assume that they died, the Gemara wonders, is that enough for a woman to go ahead and get remarried? Maybe we need more than that. Mayim she'en himself means... You can have, theoretically, a possibility where the submarine lost contact with people on dry land. They ended up going a different route. They turned out that they came up on an island somewhere, and they're all living happily ever after. Meanwhile, we're crying about their demise. We have no idea that they're all happy. It's very, very highly unlikely. Probably not the case. Probably not what happened, especially that we're going to find pieces of this submarine down on the bottom of the ocean. But, be it as it may, the Gemara does discuss all of these possibilities. And the Gemara does tell us that even in the tragic situation where you have a woman who is told by a Bezdin, based on the Aden, that she's allowed to go ahead and get remarried, if it turns out that that testimony was false and she got remarried on their word, 
she would still have the consequence of Havlad Mamzer, which means it's not a punishment. Havlad Mamzer is not a punishment, it's just a reality. If you have an Eishas Ish who goes ahead and has a relationship outside of her own marriage, the consequence of that, not because we punish her, but because the reality is that that child is going to be a Mamzer, regardless of the intent, regardless of whether or not it was something that she wanted to do as a Maisa Avera. So the Gemara Mesechus Yevamos discusses what actually produces a Mamzer. Three-way machlokis in the Gemara, what kind of relationship has to be formed in order for a Mamzer to be the result. So the Gemara's first opinion is, Rabbi Kiva says, anyone in the Torah who there's an Isser for you to marry, if you marry that person and have a child, have Lad Mamzer. doesn't matter if it's an Isser Kares, doesn't matter if it's an Isser Lav. We assume that anyone who you're not allowed to marry would be a resulting Mamzer from that union. Rabbi Shimon HaTimni is of the opinion, the middle opinion, that this is limited only to someone who is Chayde Krisus, which is a very small selection of people. If you marry one of those people, then we assume that the result is going to be a Mamzer. And the third opinion is Rabbi Yeshua, that anyone who is Chayav and Alav, Misas Bezdin. How do we paskin? We paskin like Shimon HaTimni, the Rif and the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch all say, the only way to create a Mamzer is if you have Chayde Krisus, who then are married to each other, or who have relations with each other and have a child, that is the only way that we are going to have the creation of a mamzer. Now, what is the possible outcome of a mamzer? What can they do? We know the Torah says, Lo yavo mamzer Hashem. So maybe if theoretically we can figure out somebody who's not Bekahal Hashem, maybe that would give them an ability to move forward and to get married. Now, who can that possibly be? Who is a member of our community that's able to be married but is not part of Kahal Hashem. What? Oh, so would you really say that a ger is not part of Kahal Hashem? Is that true? So a ger is allowed to be Mechal Shabbos? Of course not, right? We actually have an amazing story this summer in camp. We have a, a head oncologist who works in Sloan Kettering, who I know I'm like one track mind. I think about Camp Simcha a lot. So we have a oncologist who actually became a Gare because he became very close with one of the nurse practitioners in Sloan Kettering, who's a from woman, and they ended up getting married, and now they have children, and they're a wonderful, beautiful Jewish family, and both of them came to Camp Simchanel as medical professionals. He's the head doctor, and she is one of the nurses. It's amazing. So somebody came over to me yesterday and said, you know, we have an extra special mitzvah this year, but I have to mess a Gare. I said... Wow, that's true. I guess so. Well, we should really be nice to everyone, even though uh, even though the Torah does say but it's a very interesting scenario. So I don't think a ger would be a good example of that. But the best example would be if a mamzer could find somebody who's compatible with him, which would be a mamzeris, somebody who has the same status as he has. Now, wouldn't that be a great idea? So yesterday, somebody just told me, one of the EMTs, paramedics in camp, told me that there's somebody in Cedarhurst who's in charge of setting up Shaduchim for all the mamzer population. I said that's a very strange business to be in. Um, I'm curious, like, how much you charge for that service of setting up mamzerim only? And, like, you're keeping a very sensitive file of people, of who exactly is in the category of mamzerim and who is not. I'm not sure that we've ever had a logging of all these people put together. But the question is, is that actually a good idea? Should a mamzer actually marry a mamzeris? I'm not so sure it's a great idea. Why is it not a great idea? Because you're just perpetuating the problem. You're going to create more mamzerim. In fact, the Beishmua writes in a similar case, the Beishmua and Shulchan Aruch Eben Ezer writes, he's not so sure that you're allowed to do that. Who says a mamzer is allowed to marry a mamzeris? You're just being marbim mamzerim Yisrael. You're perpetuating the problem. Nebuch, it's a problem that you're going to have no one to marry, but a mamzeris may not be the right answer. Because if you marry the mamzeris, then you're going to end up having more mamzerim in the world, and then they're going to be stuck. Is that fair to your children? It just l'sabar ha'ozen, to give a good example. We often, as you know, Rabbi Leibowitz will tell you more than anyone else, I'm sure, he has heard many times where couples are dating and they find out that there's some kind of genetic disorder. And the question is, should we go ahead with the shit or should we not? Well, how likely is it that it is a problem? If you test enough, you can find a million different problems. We all have genetic mutations. We all have genetic issues at some point. The question is, how do they manifest themselves in the next generation? So that's a major question that we always have to think about. But let's say you have somebody who has a genetic mutation and they know that this is going to be something that is going to be perpetuated to the next generation. Now, how many people from healthy families are going to want to marry such an individual when they know that the outcome is most definitely going to be that the children are going to be sick? Most healthy people will not really want to go ahead with such a shit up. So what's the good idea? Why don't we marry them to each other? 
one or two people who have the same genetic mutation marry each other and then they will then have their own children yeah but that's a wonderful idea the problem is their children are then going to have the same problem that they had and if not worse because now they have it from both sides and maybe it's even more intensified so this is a very sensitive question just something that comes up all the time but the Beis Shmuel writes over here in terms of Mamzerus he's not so sure it's a great idea though it's true Lo Yavah Mamzer Hashem means that a Mamzer is not really part of Kahal Hashem but at the same time it doesn't really make sense to take somebody who's compatible with him, a mamzeres, and make them marry each other. This is considered such a devastating problem, so much so, in the 17th century, we had the Chavos Yar. Chavos Yar of Yar Bachrach is a very famous Tshuva Sefer La'alacha, where he was posed with the following question. A woman knew that she was pregnant with a mamzer, because she knew what happened, however it came to be, and her question then became, look, Chatasi Avisi Pashati, I understand I did something wrong, but now the reality is, I'm pregnant with a mamzer. What should I do? Do I have a right to abort the child? Not because he's sick, not because there's anything wrong, not because he's threatening my life, not because I'm afraid of the outcome, but rather because, Nebuch, I feel bad for the kid that the child is going to be born. I made a mistake. I did something wrong. As a result of my mistake, this child is now going to come into the world and be totally stuck and be isolated from the community. Do I have a right to do an abortion on this child? That was the Shaila sent to the Chavosier. An amazing Shaila. The Chavos Yar writes, listen, I don't think we can go so far as to say that we would allow Hapalas Uber, that's a serious uh, discussion in Halacha, to allow us to do that. However, he says, you have to remember, if a mamzer grows up and works hard and becomes a Talmud Chacham, he's a card-carrying member of the Jewish people like everybody else, and he could be the greatest Talmud Chacham in the generation, and he could be Paskening Shilas. Just because he's a mamzer doesn't mean he doesn't have a right to live, doesn't mean he doesn't have a right to be a part of the Jewish community. Of course he does. So why would he want to do a Hapala Subra? I understand he feel bad for him. He won't be able to get married, but okay. So he says, the only thing I'll give you is, at the bris of this child, maybe you shouldn't say the tefillah, That's what he gives him. He says, we can't actively do anything to end his life, but maybe we shouldn't give him a bracha that he should have an arichas yamim. Because after all, he's going to have an arichas yamim of a very, very difficult, painful life. Does that really make any sense? That's what he writes. But in the end of the day, he says he wouldn't allow it. There are other Achronim who disagree. The Yaivitz and others are of the opinion that you would be allowed to do a Hapalas Uber, not because the child is sick, not because the mother's life is being threatened, but simply on the grounds of the fact that maybe because this child is a mamzer, he's going to have such a difficult life with no one to marry, with nowhere to go, with uh, always feeling out of place in the community. He's not really a full member of Kahal Hashem. As a result of that, maybe we should have a heter to do a abortion in such a case. It's, it's fascinating. It's amazing. But it almost gives you the impression, gives you the understanding of how chamur these issues are. We don't take lightly when you have to do a hapala super. We don't do that just, uh, we don't just give out such, such a psak willy-nilly. It's something that we take very seriously. So here, that is something that actually was discussed in the post and is something that they take very seriously as a consideration. Now, option number two is the mamzer can marry a non-Jewish woman. Now, that's not really an option either, because the Gemara tells us, as we know, there's a prohibition for a Jewish man to be married to a non-Jewish woman. So that really is off the table, although, of course, a non-Jewish woman would be not a member of Kahal Hashem, obviously, but of course, that's not really an so that's not really a way around the problem. So what do we do? What do we do? When you're faced with a problem of mamzerus, you have somebody who really is what, seem, what would seem to be a mamzer by all criteria. We know where he came from. So how do you try to figure out how to help this person? So we didn't do a hapalas uber. We didn't abort him when he was still in utero. We don't have any mamzeras for him to marry because it's not so pasha that you're allowed to do that. The Beishmuel says you're going to be marvin mamzer in Israel. So what is the yetzer? How do the gedolei aposkim in every generation deal with these problems? So there's a certain mahalach that they try to deal with to figure out whether it's going to work. Now, let's be clear doesn't always work. There's a famous saying, when there's a will, there's a halachic way. It's not true. It's not true. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you're stuck. Sometimes, as the Gemara says, you have a mu'uvas la yachaliskon. Sometimes you have a situation which is so problematic, we don't really have a workaround. There is no way to deal with it within the confines of halacha. And that's very tragic, and that is very unfortunate. But are there ever situations where we do have the ability. And when Rav Asher Weiss was talking to me about this issue that we dealt with now, he said to me, you have to understand, this is a Shaila Pikuach Nefashas. The paskin on a person 
that they are never going to be allowed to get married. To say about a person that they're going to have to remain celibate for the rest of their lives, remain an outcast in the community because we're going to brand you as a mamzer. Understand the implication of what that means for that person. Understand that that is Dine Nefashos. Understand you're destroying someone's life forever. And all future generations of that person potentially forever. And understand the severity of the issue you're dealing with and why it is that the Gedolim and every generation have really worked hard to try to figure out some solution, if there ever was one, for this issue. Because without it, you understand, this person really has a tremendous, devastating problem on their hands. So we begin with the following. The most fundamental way to solve any Mamzerus issue, again, it doesn't always work, but the most fundamental halachic way to do it would be to figure out how we can possibly invalidate the original Kedushin. Now, this should not be misused, but there are mechanisms which with the halacha recognizes that that would be legitimate. So say, for example, how can we do that? Under every chuppah, as we know, a chassan turns to the kala and he says, What does it mean when he says, Moshe Rabbeinu is not here. So what exactly is the intended message when we bring Moshe Rabbeinu into the conversation? The answer that Chazal say is, when I get married, I'm not just getting married because I love this person. Of course, that's why I'm getting married. But I'm getting married also with an understanding that this marriage is going to run based on the understandings of how Moshe and Kla Yisrael have an assumption of how people should act and behave in a marriage. Based on that is the presumption of every couple that stands under a chuppah where we get married properly. We always say it's Kedas Moshe Yisrael. Now, it sounds like semantics, it sounds like nothing, but there are implications of that statement. For example, for example, the Gemara says, someone is Mekadish Isha Balkarcha. Now what does that mean? How can it be Mekadish and Isha Balkarcha? If I go into a business deal, I don't want to try to minimize the sanctity of a marriage, but let's just break it down in our terms when we're talking about business. So it's similar. I'm going into a business deal, I want to have a transaction with a partner. So we make a deal. How do I make a deal? I agree and you agree. We shake hands. We sign a contract. Now, it means both of us have to agree. What happens if you sign the contract but I don't sign it? Obviously, there's no deal. What happens if I force you to sign it? What what do you mean you force me to sign it? How can that be? My lawyers won't let me sign it. So what does it mean when you have Mekadish Isha Balkarcha? How can I force the woman to accept my proposal for marriage? It doesn't make sense. So the Gemara says it means that I talk her into it enough, I manipulate her enough until she says, yes, yes, that's okay, I have no choice, and basically she says yes, and she accepts the Kiddushin, but the bottom line is, she doesn't want to be married to you. She doesn't want to be married, so that's called Mekadi Shishabal Karcha. Of course, in the end she said yes, but she has no interest, she doesn't want to be married to you. In that situation where it was, because of an ones Shagam Rebeliba, because of an ones means so much pressure was mounted on her, that she had no choice but to say yes, in that case, that's not really a recipe for a good marriage. That's not Kedas Moshe Yisrael. That's not the way Moshe Rabbeinu set up the whole institution of marriage. It's not something the Chachamim are happy about, and therefore in such a situation we say that the Chachamim were mafkia the Kiddushin, because you should not have done that, because you should not have forced the woman into the marriage, and you did that, therefore we're going to punish you, so to speak, and we're going to invalidate the whole marriage, and she can just go free. No problem, as if nothing ever happened. That's one example of where Kedas Moshe Yisrael will actually play out. Now, that's a very rare example. We don't normally encounter such things. But the Gemara does give another very unusual example. The Gemara says, we have the following case. Let's say you have a Ketana, a woman who's under the age of Bas Mitzvah who gets married. Now, we don't have that reality today, but back in the days of Chazal, it was pretty common. So you have a woman who's under the age of Bas Mitzvah who gets married. Chazal set up a mechanism that she's allowed to be married under the age of Bas Mitzvah so long as she's mature and it makes sense. So they get married and they're living very nicely, everything's very good. However, the only problem is Iktana really is not able to be a Bas Kiddushin. She's not a Bas Das. She doesn't have total capacity which would allow her to be engaged in this marriage, in this union. So what's the halacha? The halacha is they're allowed to get married, but once she becomes a Gedola, they should then get really married up the halacha. So says the Gemara, here's what they do. They have the marriage when she's a Ketan. Then they schedule a marriage the day after her bas mitzvah. We're not just going to have a bas mitzvah party. We're going to have a big wedding celebration. We're going to invite everybody to have a big party. And everyone's going to be happy about the fact that now this couple is going to get married 
the proper way because now they're both of age. What happens? They set up a long chuppah, a long aisle. The is walking down the aisle. As she's about to come down the aisle in front of everyone, some guy who's been eyeing her for the last couple of years walks up there and says, listen, you got stuck with this guy because you were too young to realize what was out there. You didn't know your options. Wouldn't you love to be married to me? I'm a much better catch. Don't get stuck the rest of your life with this guy. And right there, he swoops in right before the chuppah, gives her a ring, says, and steals the woman away from the husband who she was married to. So what's the halacha there? Now, technically, she was Makabal Kedushin. She was not married at the time because it was only Kedushin Medir so he has a right to do this. But that's insane. You're not allowed to do that. Says the Gemara, that's against Das Moshe Yisrael. Would Moshe Rabbeinu be proud of you? Would Moshe Rabbeinu be proud of you if he knew that this is what you did? Of course not. Moshe Rabbeinu would be much happier if this woman stuck it out with her husband, who they've been having a fine marriage together, and you went ahead and found someone else. You're not doing something that's proper, and therefore the Gemara says, it's not Kedas Moshe Yisrael. I'm not a therapist, but people come all the time in the context of a shul. People come all the time and discuss different issues that they have. On occasion, I've actually dropped this in the middle of a conversation. You got married and you said Kedas Moshe Yisrael. If Moshe Rabbeinu visited your house, would he be proud of what he sees going on right now? You signed up to that. You promised this is the way you're going to run your house. Is this really something that whoever the Rav who was Masada Kedushin, if he knew what was going on between you and your spouse, would he be proud? Would he be happy? Would he be like want to have any affiliation with the story that is your life? Or would you say like maybe we should reconsider a couple of things in our lives and maybe we should go a different direction? Again, it's very simple. It's something you've signed up to. Now, Chazal take it to the extreme, and they say, as a result of your not following Kedas Moshe Yisrael, we're now going to go back and invalidate your Kedushin. But again, as we said, these two cases that the Gemara gives are very unlikely, very unusual. So is there any other way to figure out how to get around this original problem of Mamzerus to do it where it's not going to any longer be a Kedushin that was Chal in the first place? So we have an absolutely fascinating halachic loophole that came up in the days of the Maharsham. The Maharsham was one of the great postgame in the last generation. And the Maharsham, if you ever hear about these topics or you're ever reading a tshuva, you'll see it's referred to as the Get Maharsham. There's a lot of discussion about it. Rabbi has pages and pages on it. Many Gedoli Achronim have a lot to talk about. But the Maharsham writes the following idea. I'm going to read you the story. The story was, Isha Nesua Shiyashva Gamuda Shtem Esrei Shana. Get a woman whose husband was missing for 12 years. That's a long time. Twelve years she was alone, and she was very religious, and she decided, I'm not going to break my relationship with my husband. Right now she's in Aguna, she was stuck. And after twelve years, along come two Adam and say, we feel terrible. You've been waiting around for twelve years. Do you know? Twelve years ago we were on a business trip with your husband in a different city. He was killed right in front of us. We watched the whole thing happen. Nebuch, you know, you should have gotten married 12 years ago, but we didn't know how to find you. Now we located you. You should just know you're allowed to get remarried. Fine. The basin in the town makes up sack that she's allowed to get uh, remarried. The problem was that she needed a chalitza because they never had children. So they went to the brother-in-law. They got the chalitza done. Everything was fine. And now she goes ahead and gets married to a second husband and becomes pregnant right away. Suddenly, her first husband shows up. So 12 years, nobody hears from him. She goes ahead, does the chalitza. Took another few months until she got married. Now she gets remarried. Took another few months until she became pregnant. Now she became pregnant. And suddenly, out of nowhere, 13 years later, the husband shows up. What do we do now? This is a real Shiloh Mamzer. So this came to the Maharshal. And just, you understand the seriousness of the situation. And this is really just a, an example, but it's the severity of this every time it happens. Every time it happens. So listen. What the Maharsham writes, He says, I'm very concerned about this child that she's now pregnant with. If we're going to say that this child is going to be deemed a mamzer, which he should be, because after all, by no fault of her own, but the bottom line is she got remarried while she was still married to her first husband. I have no doubt this woman is not going to raise the child. They're going to give him up for adoption. There are no options of adoption that it can actually raise this child as a Jew. So he's going to become a non-Jew. He's going to be part of the Christians. And they're going to be happy to have him with open arms. And therefore, he says, that's problem number one. 
Number two, he says, Ha'isha Option number two is that the woman says, I, I can't leave my child, but she's going to commit suicide together with her child because she's going to say, I, what kind of life is this? I was fooled. I was tricked. And now I have another child in the world? So there's a concern that maybe she's going to die by suicide along with this child. Both of them are going to be are going to end their lives very short. And he says, um, This is the only child that she has from her second husband. And after all the trauma that she went through for the last 12 years and now getting remarried and having this outcome, he says, I have very, very serious concerns. So what do you do? So the Maharsham comes up with the following chiddush, amazing chiddush. We have a concept in halacha called shlichus. Shlichus is something that we find very often in many mitzvahs hatot. So for example, every Jewish member of the community has to bring a carbon Pesach. But imagine if every Jew is going to show up to the Beis Amigdash on Erev Pesach, there's no way that we can actually have a carbon Pesach be offered for everyone in that short span of time. So what do we do? We have a concept of shlichus. We have a chabura, we have a whole group of people sign up together, and we send one person on behalf of all of us who's going to shop the carbon Pesach and going to bring back, we'll all have a Seder together. The Gemara says we have, in general, by Shechitas Karbanos or by Hafrashas Truma, many different areas in Halakha where you can have a Shliach. And the same goes with Gitin the Kiddushin. For anyone who learned Masechus Gitin, the very beginning of the Masechta is Hamedi Gitin the Nisayam, which means if I have a get that was given to me, I was entrusted to be the Shliach, and I'm supposed to deliver it to the other party. Okay, so we have this concept of Shlichas. Now, if I have a shliach, a proxy who's in my place, that obviously means it's working on the assumption that... Does this end soon? No. <laughs> so, um, the assumption of shlichus is that I'm giving someone the power of attorney to stand in my place and to do something on my behalf. What happens if I relinquish that responsibility from that person and I say, oh... I once made you into a shliach to be mafish truma for me, but I don't trust you anymore. I don't want you to be a shliach. From now on, I'm going to do it myself. And you say, no, you made me a shliach. Well, it doesn't matter. Once I'm about to the shlichos, once I relinquish your responsibility and I say we no longer have this relationship, then it's over. So says the Gemara, what happens in the following case? I have a husband who lives in New York. His wife lives in California. You can imagine what a wonderful marriage this is, and that's why they're getting divorced. So he lives in New York. I know I'm going to get an email from someone who's going to say, oh, I live on the other side of the ocean and we have a wonderful marriage and I travel for business. It's great. Not what I'm talking about. So you have a husband who lives in New York. His wife lives in California. They're getting divorced. It's a terrible marriage. He never wants to see her again. But in order to sever the ties, in order to end the marriage, he has to actually write a get. But he doesn't want to see her. He doesn't want to go travel to, to meet with her again. But the Torah says, Vanessa Miyada. He has to put in her hand. So what do you do? So how do you have a situation where the husband doesn't have to look at his wife, but he's therefore going to still be able to do Vinasa Miyada? How does that happen? Shlichus, great idea. So I'm going to find someone who's flying to California. I'm going to tell him, listen, my wife and I are getting divorced anyway, and I just had a sofa right to get. Would you mind taking the get along with you? Knock on the door when you get there. This is her address. When you get there tonight, please let her know that you are the shliach on my behalf to deliver the get to her, and she's free to get married to whoever she wants. Now, she's going to be thrilled. He's happy. Everyone's happy. Now, what happens? You send the guy on the plane. Two hours into the flight, it's a six-hour flight. Two hours into the flight, you say to yourself, hey, I'm not really sure that I want to divorce her. You know, we did have 20 years of a good marriage, so we had a problem, and we're separated the last couple of weeks or months. But, you know, in the end of the day... We'll work it out. We'll go to a good therapist. We'll figure it out. I don't want to get divorced. The problem is the get is already in transit. So what do you do? So he says, well, the only way the get can get there is if he's my shliach. But there's a mechanism to undo that. I can be mevatel shlichus. So I can say, I can make a declaration that I no longer want you to be my shliach. So what happens then? Doesn't work. What doesn't work? Uh, the the your intent for him to be a shliach. What does that mean? Why? Because he's art like you already gave him the job to do so, and he's not cheated. They're not going to know until it's too late that he's vata because too much confusion. Oh, so the Gemara says that really the halacha should be that if I'm a vata the shliach, his job is over. He's no longer connected to me, and even though he's holding a very sensitive document that has my name on it, it doesn't mean anything. 
He can't do anything without my permission. So the truth is, it really should work. If I'm about to l'shliach, it's over. However, Chazal said, what's that world going to look like? You're going to have so much confusion. Nobody's going to know. Am I married? Am I not married? Maybe my husband wrote a get somewhere and he's mavatel l'shliach along the way. I think I'm divorced, but I'm not divorced. Says the Gemara, if you're mavatel l'shliach, shalob ifaneha, either you're mavatel l'shliach, not in front of him, so he doesn't know that l'shlichus is over, or you're mavatel l'shliach, shalob ifaneha isha, then what good is it? You're going to have people roaming around thinking they're allowed to get remarried and it turns out they're not. And therefore, Chazal said, that get is batel. I'm sorry, that that bitel hashlichos is going to be bottle, but it's not bottle. So how do you look at it? So Chazal said, we then go back retroactively. You did something so terrible. You now did something which is not Kedas Moshe Yisrael pretty much because you're playing around with the system. Now this woman's not going to know is she allowed to get remarried or not because of something that you did wrong. You're mevato l'shleach shalobafa. Now Chazal say, in such a case, we should say the Kiddushin is bottle lemafreya. So you were married for 20 years, it's true. But your marriage meant absolutely nothing. Why did your marriage mean nothing? Because now you turned around and did something horrible. Now that you did something horrible, we're going to go back in time, 25 years, and we're going to say, your Kiddushin never got off the ground because you did something that was not Kedas Moshe Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu would not be proud of what you just did. Says the Marashah, I have a great idea. You ever have an issue? Here's how you deal with the problem. Mamzerus has a serious issue, but I have a great idea. You have a woman, in our case, the Marsham's case, a woman got married, 12 years she was alone, Adam came along and said, your husband died, she now gets remarried based on the Bezdin that told her to do so, now she becomes pregnant and she's afraid she's pregnant with a mamzer. Says the Marsham, the woman is going to kill herself, she's going to kill the baby, she's going to give him up for adoption, whatever's going to happen, terrible outcome. So what do we do? Says the Marsham, I have a great idea. You know what you should do? Have the husband write a get. With shlichus, have the husband send the get to his wife with someone else, and then on the way, we'll work this all out in advance. On the way, he'll be mevata the shliach, which is a terrible thing to do. Now, in this case, it's a great thing to do because what happens then? Then you retroactively invalidated the marriage from 20 years ago. That's the great idea of the Marsham. And the Marsham said, based on that, he was comfortable allowing this mamzer to come into the world and to marry somebody else, no longer a mamzer, a pella, amazing pella. It's a pella for many reasons. It's a pella because actually the Rishonim deal with this issue. Rabbeinu Tam and the Ri discuss what happens when the Gemara talks about this, that if you do a bitel ashlichos, you can then go back and retroactively ruin a marriage. Rabbeinu Tam says, Shem al-basa Say, for example, you love your niece very much. And you're looking for a shidduch. You can't find anyone to marry. Okay, your niece loves you. You like her. So why don't you get married? There's no way. So it sounds incestuous. It sounds wrong. But there's nothing wrong. You're allowed to marry your niece. So says the halacha, what's going to be? I'm married to my niece. My niece then, in the context of our marriage, does something that she shouldn't do. Has an affair. Gives birth to a mountain. She comes to me one day and says, listen, you know, I want to let you know I did something I shouldn't have done. I was unfaithful. But you're my uncle. Have some Rahmanas on me. So what am I going to do? What should I do? I'm going to say, Nisala, you know, you know what you should do? You get a little slap on the wrist, but we can take care of you. How are we going to take care of you? I'll write a get. I'll send it with a shliach. I'll be mavata the shliach. And then it turns out we were never married in the first place. Now, most husbands would be very upset if their wives were unfaithful. This uncle is also upset, but he says, in the end of the day, I love her. She's my niece. I don't want to ruin her life. I don't want to ruin the child's life. So says Rabbi Tam, how can this be? We're going to then have a mechanism for somebody who's married to his niece, for Basa Choso, who he loves his wife so much and he wants to help her. We're going to help him undo the situation on Mamzeres that his wife created intentionally? You know what's going to happen? Then every woman's going to, going to go and be Mizana and assume that her husband's going to get her out of the problem. Says Rabbi Tam, what's going to happen is we here made a Tarkana in order to help the Jewish people stay away from problems. Right? This Dalad Amos business, I'm sorry, this business of being Mivata Lashliach, Shalom we made a Tarkana in order to save people. It turns out you're going to destroy families. Why are you going to destroy families? Because then there's no reason for a woman to be faithful. Again, the reason is because a marriage should be faithful. But there's no safety net for a woman to be faithful because she knows there's always a workaround. There's always a way around it. Nothing wrong. There's no consequence. If there's no consequence, 
then there's no deterrent. So Rabbi Tam and the Reh have a major machlokas, which is why, and based on that, and many others have had many, many major, major issues with this um, consideration of a get maharsham, and whether or not we would actually use it, al-pi halacha, is something that is very, very questionable. So usually we don't do that. What is the second eight? So how much time do I have? We're just getting started. Okay, so the, the second eight, sir. Three hours. The second Eitzah is that a get betoch daladamos would be considered v'nasam biyada. We know the halacha is in order for a woman to be divorced, you have to actually give her the get v'nasam biyada. So what about if I give it betoch daladamos So then the halacha is that's considered also v'nasam biyada. What if I am standing over here? We're both outside, not inside the room. We're both outside in the big open fields here. I throw a get to my wife, but she's nowhere near me. But I figure out how to get it karavla. I figure out how to get it closer to her than it is to me, but it's not within Daladamas to her. So what's the halacha then? What's the halacha then? So the Gemara Masechus Gittin talks about that, and it says, what's the halacha if you throw a get in a Rishus HaRabim, where she is far away from you, nowhere near you, but you figure out how to get the get within range to her, but out of her Daladamas. But it's car of love. It's more close to her than it is to you. Says the Gemara, Harehu Mikureshas. That works. Harehu Mikureshas. That works. However, the problem is that Chazal said that's going to be a terrible problem. Why? Because you're going to have a woman walking on the street one day. Unbeknownst to her, her husband's going to throw her a get from a block away. It's going to be Karavla and not Karavla. She's going to have no idea. So Chazal said, this is going to be a churban. This is going to be terrible. How can we allow this to happen? So Chazal said, in such a case, we're going to be mafkia the Kiddushin, the Mafreya. Because you're doing a terrible thing. You're divorcing your wife without her even knowing. She thinks she's married. It turns out she's divorced. It was Karavla. It doesn't really make sense. So Chazal said, the reason why they came up with this idea of being mafkia the Kiddushin in such a case is because you're ruining her life. Because she doesn't know that she's Mugureshas. And meanwhile, you think she knows that she's Mugureshas because it got cover of love, but it wasn't close enough for her to even realize that she was divorced. And therefore, Chazal say that in such a case, we can say that the Kiddushin is Batal and So what about in a situation like ours? A situation like ours where you have a woman who is married, then she goes ahead and gets remarried without a get from the first husband, has a child from the second marriage, and now from that child, that child now wants to get married, but he can't because he turns out he's a mamzer. So we have a great idea. Let's invite the first husband back into the equation. Now, if he writes a get to his wife now, what good is that? Nothing. Because at the time that she had the child, she was still married to him. So it doesn't help that she writes the get, that she gets a get now. So what's the Yetzirah? The Yetzirah is, tell the husband to write a get, to throw it to her, to make sure, though, that in doing so, he doesn't get it, but it's closer to her than it is to him. It's not so pasha to figure this out. But to figure out a way that you can do that where it's karavla and not karavlo, but yet at the same time it's going to be chutzmi And then in a situation like that, Chazal said, that's such a horrible thing to do that Lemafreya were going to uproot your original Kiddushin. If you do that, then it turns out that you were never married in the first place and therefore it's not as if she was having an affair while she was married to her husband and the child that results from that second husband is no longer considered to be a mamzer. The way they do it in Eretz Yisrael is, by the way, they line up a whole street of trucks, one next to the other, where you can't walk through. You can't get through. Each bumper is touching the other. So you have the woman stands on one side of the street, husband stands on the other side of the street. So when you do this, you have no possibility for the husband to get to the other side of the street without walking around the whole block to get around this whole line of cars that is blocking the street. What does he do? He throws the get over the cars to the other side of the street, and she's more than Daladamas away from where he threw it to. Now, it's car of love because the only possibility for him to get there is to walk all the way around the street and get to where they are, to get to where the get is. So it's certainly going to be car of love. But it's chutzmi Daladamas, and once you do that, that's a way of undoing the whole original Kedushan, and that is the way of being Matara de Mamzer. Usually, that is not going to be the sole way that we get around a problem of Mamzerus. 
Because if that was the case, we'd be makel in every case. It would never be a mamzer v'shaila again. Now, not necessarily true, because not every husband is always prepared to do this shtick, to take care of his wife. So it doesn't always work. But it would potentially be something that is thrown into the mix. When we come up with some kind of heter mamzerus, sometimes they will take into account that you should also try to do this get, which is mechutz al but la, and that is a way to work around it. Yeah? Isn't that the same problem with the uncle and the niece? With, uh, with this? There is. There is. The only difference is, by the uncle and the niece case, the Rishonim um, specifically write that that would not work in such a case. Some Rishonim say that. In this case, the Rishonim don't say it. What well, shouldn't it be? The same? It should be the same lambdas, but the Rishonim don't say beferish. So maybe we should say that they only said it there, and this is so unusual that it's not going to be the same. So what are some of the other possibilities that we can think about for a heteram zerus? So we have in in business. You have certain assumptions whenever you purchase an item. There's an assumption of the shelf life of that item. So the Gemara says the Shulchan Aruch Paskins is based on a Mishnah Baba Basra. What happens if I have Mocher Yayin I own a wine store. What's the assumption of the consumer how long that wine is going to last before it spoils? Whatever, whatever the assumption is. Six months to a year, whatever that is. Says the Mishnah what happens if it then spoils after that designated amount of time. Well, that's not my problem. The assumption is, if you're buying a bottle of wine, you're going to drink it within the next six months. You didn't drink it within six months, and now you're upset at me why it went spoiled, why it went sour. That's not my problem. You can't get your money back at that point. It's too late. Right? Many stores have a certain period of time when you can return an item. After that, we say, too bad. So it's based on the assumptions of the purchaser and the provider. Now, let's say, as the provider... I knew that my wine has already been sitting on the shelves for six months, and I couldn't sell it. And now I go and I sell it to you, and I know that it's only going to have a shelf life of two weeks. Now, that's not reasonable to assume that the consumer is going to drink it within the next two weeks. Every consumer knows when he buys a bottle of wine, he has six months to drink it. So what's the halacha there? Says the Shulchan in that case, I can say, Mekachtos, that wasn't fair. You didn't tell me that I had to drink it within the next two weeks. Now I open up the bottle a month later, and it tastes terrible. So I can come back and get my money back because that was not the assumption of the purchase that I made. And the Rambam makes it very clear in Hilfus Mechira, When I buy something, I assume that this is a perfect item. There's nothing wrong with it. If it turns out there's something that's really wrong with it, it's defective, then it means I have a right to go back and get my money back. I can make an exchange. So that is what the Shulchan Aruch says. Now, says the Shulchan Aruch, there's a little caveat here. What if I decide that, let me try it out. So I try it out, and the item is fine. You know, the wine is not exactly the way I love it, but it's fine. Then, at the very last drops of the bottle, I say, you know what, you sold me a spoiled bottle of wine. So can I go back to the store and say, look, look what it is. The store owner can say to you, what do you mean, you drank 90% of the bottle, obviously you were okay with it. Had you come back to me originally and said, you gave me a spoiled bottle of wine, of course I would have given you the money back. But if it was suffered to keep it, if you decided that you wanted to keep it because Oh, okay, it's not as bad as I thought, then you can't turn around in the end and say, oh, I want the money back after I drank the whole thing. So, how does that translate itself into a marriage? Of course, a marriage is not exactly the same as a transaction in business, but some of the klolim are certainly going to be the same. So we do have a concept of mekachtos by a marriage, where the Gemara says in Mesechus Ksuvas, let's say a man gets married, and at the time that he got married, it was amanas she'ein ba mumin. He makes a stipulation where he says, I'm only marrying you, assuming that you are perfect. Now, that person never existed in the world. Nobody's perfect. Not a man and not a woman. Everyone has certain deficiencies. Either something physical or something emotional or something, whatever whatever it is. Everybody has character traits that are imperfect. It's just the way we are. So what does he mean when he says, I'm only marrying you if you're perfect? So the Gemara says, tone it down. It doesn't mean any problem that he finds that, you know, a pimple on her face means she's imperfect? Of course not. It means that if she has a mum gadol, if she has something very seriously defective, then he has a right to turn around and say, hey, this is violating the agreement. When we got married, the assumption was that everything's perfect, and it turns out you're very much not perfect. For example, says the Gemara, if she has a terrible reach hapet. So nowadays, we're lucky we have mouthwash, and we have toothpaste, and we don't have these problems, usually. But let's say you have a person, in the days of Chazal, there was no such thing. 
So you have a person who has a horrible odor coming out of their mouth. The husband says, I can't live with this woman. Every time I'm near her, I'm nauseous. I don't know what to do. This smell is something I can't stand. Says the Shohanar, that's a mumgadol. That's a very serious problem. That's not a little issue that he's nitpicking. That's a real problem. Or says the Gemara, if you have a reach you have a terrible body odor. Now, we have showers now, and we have deodorant, and we have perfume, and we have ways around it. But let's say you have somebody who just has a very terrible natural body odor. A husband says, I can't live in a house with this woman. What am I going to do? Every time I'm with her, I just don't feel well. So in such a case, says the Shofanar, if that's called a mumgadol, she should have revealed that before. And if they didn't, then he have a right to say that that is considered a kiddushetos. He have a right to say that the whole premise of the marriage was something that was not honest. And he have a right to say that lemafreya is as if they never got married at all. So how does that translate itself into today's world? So Ramosha Feinstein writes that he had a case where there was a woman who got married, and a couple of months into the marriage, it turns out, the husband and wife get into a big disagreement. Okay, what's the disagreement? Disagreement was, the husband says, one second, when we got married, you thought we were going to have children? That wasn't my plan. I thought we were just getting married because we love each other. Who wants kids? Who wants to be involved in children? I don't want to have to take care of kids. You know what tuitions cost today? I want to get married because I want companionship. I don't want to have a family. And the wife says, are you nuts? I didn't think we needed to discuss this. Isn't it obvious that when a couple gets married, they want to have children? We don't have to even talk about it. So push it. So they get in a big fight. Then, in the middle of this fight, they find out the woman is actually pregnant. And the husband goes berserk. And Rav Moshe said that the husband said he demands that his wife does an abortion because when they got married, he had no possibility in his mind that they were ever going to have children. And it was assumed that we weren't having children. And she says it was assumed that we are having children. Says Ramosha, that's considered a moon guddle. For a husband to claim that he doesn't plan to have children in a marriage, that's that's not normal. That's, again, unless there's some very unusual circumstance, but if you have a regular couple that gets married with no prior discussion, the assumption is we're going to have children. And therefore Ramosha says for a husband to go to the extreme and say, now that his wife is pregnant, he wants to do an abortion because he doesn't want to have children, Ramosha says that would be grounds to say now again, that's a very extreme case. That's a very unusual case. Where Moshe says that's similar to the extreme case that the Gemara gives of Reach Guf or Reach or something that is so obviously off with this union, with this marriage. In such a case, it's so simple and straightforward. But the problem is, as we know, life is not always so simple and straightforward. You have many variations of gray in the middle and many things that would maybe bother one side or not bother somebody else. And you have to really very carefully weigh what is considered to be a Mechachtos and what perhaps is not. Not only that, the Gemara here in Mesechas Kiddushin also talks about the following very interesting reality. We just gave the case. What happens if when they get married, the husband says, I want to marry you only on the condition that you have nothing wrong. What if under the chuppah, the woman says, I'm only marrying you, young man, on the condition that you have nothing wrong with you? You hothead, right? You say, there's nothing, as long as there's nothing wrong with me, what about if it turns out there's something wrong with you? And then they get married, and it turns out that the husband does have something wrong. So says the Gemara, should it work in the other direction? Should we say, just like if the husband's conditions were not met. And it turns out that his wife has a terrible reach, and he can't live with it, so we say, he doesn't even need to get divorced. It's like the condition never happened. Maybe we should say in the other direction as well. If she made a condition before the marriage that she's only going to marry him as long as he is a perfect person, and it turns out he's not, says the Gemara, not so fast. Why not so fast? Why not so fast? Anybody know? Tavla Mesav. So the Gemara comes up with a very interesting Kiddush. The Gemara assumes that if a woman was given a choice, either you'll be single the rest of your life, or you can be married, but married to this guy with all of his problems. Which one would you prefer? So the Gemara says that the assumption is that a woman would say, I would rather have companionship even if it's with this miserable husband, as opposed to being alone for the rest of my life. That's what the Gemara assumes. And therefore, it's not so clear, even if at the time of the marriage she did make a stipulation, it's not so clear that that's going to then invalidate the marriage. That's what the Gemara says. Now, Rab Moshe and other Achronim, the Beis Yitzchak, other great poskim say, uh, depends what the issue is. If the issue turns out to be a very serious issue, like we just saw Rab Moshe had, 
that a Mekach Toz works in both directions, of course. All the Gemara means to say is, on a spectrum, on a spectrum, if you gave a man a choice and said, would you be okay to live alone the rest of your life or to live with a woman like this, he would say, I'll be alone, it's fine. If you gave a woman a choice, would you like to live alone the rest of your life or would you be willing to settle a little bit and marry this kind of man who has this kind of problem? Most women, says the Gemara, would say, as long as this problem is not as extreme as I thought, I would still be willing to settle, I'll be willing to stay married to him anyway. So the Gemara doesn't mean to say that a woman is going to make a shmata out of herself and marry anybody, of course not. What the Gemara is saying is that a woman's threshold is much lower than the threshold of a man. And therefore, says the Gemara, the assumption would be that a woman would be willing to do that, barring the situation when you have a real serious makafto. So again, this is something that sometimes is applicable. Hard to really figure out where we would say it's considered a makaftos and where not. Ramosha has many chubas where he tries to explain exactly when it's a makaftos and when it's not. Not exactly so simple to really know what the guidelines are for what would count as a makaftos and what perhaps are not. Again, the Shulchan Aruch gives a few cases, but those cases are very extreme. What if you have somewhere in the middle where the case is not as extreme? What would you do then? So often, um, what we what we're confronted with is that there was a couple that got married. And the original Kiddushan was done by a conservative or a reform rabbi. Rabbi Moshe has a number of chuvas where he says that when you have a Kiddushan, he's unequivocally clear over and over again that when you have a Kiddushan that is done by a conservative or, or a reform rabbi, they are considered to be a mumer l'tayabon. They are considered to be bali avera. They have no na'amanas at all. They have no right to uh, be misad a Kiddushan or to be edim on a Kiddushan. And therefore, Moshe unequivocally writes that we can passel the Kedushin Lagamri. There's no discussion to be had. Now, not everybody agreed with that. One of those who disagreed was Rav Salavechik, who said, I had dealings with Reform rabbis, and some of them are very firm. And they only took the jobs because they needed a parnasa. But it's not because they believe in the ethical code of the Reform uh, movement. And therefore, Rav Salavechik said, we really need to judge each one on their own merit. So when this case came up... What? I thought reform is worse. Oh, you're saying did did the rough say about both? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. You're right. Maybe it's maybe it's not. I think he he definitely said about conservative, where he said there were many orthodox rabbis who took jobs in conservative shuls because they needed a job. Now, is that right? Is it wrong? It's a different conversation. But Rav Salavitchik said they're not all considered to be Avrayanim. Now, Rav Moshe Feinstein did not accept that at all. Rav Moshe said, unequivocally off the bat, they're all out. So part of the case that we were dealing with here was an original marriage that was done by a conservative rabbi. My father was not comfortable being makel on those grounds because he said, the conservative rabbi, we did some research, he was a very firm conservative rabbi. Rav Asher Weiss said, in the end of the day, if you're going to bring me a shayla from America and you're dealing with somebody who's living in America, the bottom line is the posik of America was Rav Moshe Feinstein. Are you prepared to passle someone for the rest of their life because you don't passle like Ramosha? Ramosha is not a lightweight in the area of halacha. He was a very serious posik, and we take his second very seriously. Now, if you're part of a group, part of a community that happens not to follow Ramosha in this case, so be it. But you can't say on a person, I'm going to passle you as a mamzer because I don't hold a Ramosha. Who are you not to hold a Ramosha when it's his life on the line? So Ramosha Weiss felt very strongly in this case then how can we say that we're not going to accept Rav Moshe? Now, if you're not comfortable writing the Psaq, that's fine. But to say that this person is now going to be written off forever as a mamzer is a very severe, very extreme thing to say, especially when exactly in this case, Rav Moshe said it's mutter. And Rav Moshe said there is no problem at all. So that was part of the heter again. That was part of the issue. Uh, the question also then became, this conservative rabbi always said that he was very makbid to always have the chazan of the shul come along with him, who was also an orthodox uh, person, to always be the second aid. So they always had two kosher aid. So Rav Asher Weiss challenged that, and he said, yes, it's true. But what happened when the man went on vacation, and there happened to be a wedding in the middle of January, and he was on winter break going to California? You really think that the conservative rabbi, after 25 years being in the conservative shul, eating treif at all the weddings, do you really believe that he was so mocked, he was so careful every single time to make sure that there was always a second kosher aid there? Once in a while, the guy got a flu. Right? Once in a while, he went on vacation. He wasn't always there. So what did they do in that case? What did they do in that situation? He was a Masada Kedushin anyway. And he said, oh, they're conservative anyway. They don't care. He's probably right. The grandchildren tell us he was very, very makbid 
to always do everything al piyalacha. They told us that he made some kind of fancy microphone where it was a grumma in the shul, and even though he had to use a microphone in shul, he always makes sure to be sensitive. Now, what does that mean? Maybe that's the first five years of his job. We're talking about this marriage happened 25 years into his steller, into his job in the conservative shul. You have a right to say after 25 years, you really believe that he was so mocked on everything when his shul is serving treif at their dinner, when every wedding he goes to, they're not eating kosher food. Can you really believe that? So these are all part of the part of the shikulim, part of the bottom line of the question. But what's very impressive about all of this is that we live in a generation lo almon Yisrael. Baruch Hashem, today being Gedolim Day here in Camp Kaley, we have the opportunity to really appreciate how lucky and blessed we are to have Tamir HaChamim in our generation as in every prior generation who give us the opportunity to appreciate their responsibility that they take when serious questions come up. And there is never a generation of Jews that doesn't have serious problems, that doesn't have serious questions. We're always going to be faced with them. And Baruch Hashem, we have avenues and we have the ability to reach out to those avenues to try and guide us and to try to help us to work through many, many of the complexities of halacha, not only that once were, but that continue to regenerate themselves in every single generation. So, wishing all of you Hatzlacha. I hope the next guest visitor will give a little bit more of an exciting topic instead of this. But uh, we should talk about happy things. But unfortunately, sometimes sad things happen in the world too. we got to talk about them as well. Wonderful day, everyone. Enjoy it. I have a question. Is it the emotion of emotion?